Lord, we ask as we go to your word right now that your Holy Spirit would speak with power, would not be the words of man, but the word of God. And Lord, that we'd all have ears to hear what your Holy Spirit wants to speak to each of us this morning. Lord, we know we're not here by chance. We're here by divine appointment. And so, Lord, we look forward to hearing from you. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in one of the chairs in front of you. And you're going to need it. So while you're turning there, we're we're starting to look now at the... uh, the part of Revelation where God brings his righteous judgment upon the earth. And like I, as I said before, the book of Revelation is a book that is skipped by many people because for many people they find it hard to understand. But remember that Revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, if we're going to fully know our Savior, we must know this book. Because it's in this book that we get to know his person and his character in a better and a deeper way. Now, We're going to start looking at the text, but before we do, in Matthew chapter 24, don't turn there, Jesus gives his Olivet Discourse. He's on the Mount of Olives, he's speaking to the disciples, and they come to him and ask him, what will be the sign of the end times? And here's what Jesus said. The reason I'm going to quote this to you is it perfectly matches what happens in chapter 6. And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying that I am the Christ, and deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake." He would then go on to talk about all the cosmic disturbances, the sun and the moon and all the changes in the stars and the things that would happen during the Great Tribulation. Now, in order, it was deception, wars, famine, pestilence, martyrdom, and then cosmic disturbances. We get to chapter 6, and guess what? It's exactly in that order. God's word is divinely and perfectly put together by the creator of the universe. Should we not be surprised when Jesus says something is going to happen, that it will happen exactly as he says, and the word of God is consistent. So in chapter 4 and 5, chapter 1, we saw the person of Christ unveiled to us. Chapter 2 and 3, we saw the letters to the seven churches. Again, each of those churches being an example for us to learn from, a picture of the church as a whole. In chapters 4 and 5, we've been getting a glimpse into heaven. John was snatched up into heaven at the beginning of chapter 4, caught away. Again, a picture of the rapture of the church. He's up in heaven, and while he's in heaven, he gets to see the beauty of what God is doing. He gets to see, and remember, what was the focal point in heaven? What was the focal point? Man, that was really weak. I mean, it was just last week I taught this, right? Right? What was the focal point in heaven? The throne of God and the one who sits on the throne. Amen? Amen. He didn't talk about golden streets and pearly gates. He was talking about the throne of God. Wow, people say I'm too repetitive. I need to be more repetitive, I think, because in one week we forgot. But he looks at the glory and the beauty of heaven, and now we get to chapter 6, and we're going to see a radical difference. We're going to see the very the antithesis of heaven and what happens on earth. Some have said during the Great Tribulation that it's hell on earth, and that's not far from being wrong. And it's so, we are going to see a glimpse of what hell will be like. But I believe that, again, God is doing that to show grace. 
because he brings, in a sense, hell to earth that those people might have one last opportunity to be born again. And that's the God that we serve. He desires that none should perish, no, not one. So chapter five, we, 4 and 5, we saw the, the beauty of heaven that is reserved for those who are walking in his grace, who've received his forgiveness, who've repented of their sin. And in chapter 6, we're going to begin to see God's righteous judgment being poured out on the earth that is reserved for those who have chosen to remain in rebellion and disobedience. Every person that goes through the tribulation will have rejected God's grace. Every person that spends eternity in hell separated from him is someone who has walked over the cross of Calvary to get there. So as we get to 6 and 7, we're going to see, remember last week, we talked about he took the scroll. He was the one who took the scroll out of the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. Again, that's God the Father. And Jesus Christ was the only one worthy to take the scroll. Remember that all the angelic host and the elders who were there sang out, worthy is the lamb, right? And so in heaven, we're going to see that it is filled with worship. We see this perfect picture in heaven, but we're going to see that he is a God who is worthy to be worshiped and be praised, but he's also a righteous judge. Because as he takes that scroll that has seven seals on it, and as we're going to see this morning, as he starts to open that scroll, now, that's, now here's, here's more bonus question, okay? Let's see if we can all pay attention. That scroll was what? The what? Title deed to earth, amen? Okay, remember that he was the one. He owns it. We had dominion over the earth, and we gave it up in the garden when man chose to sin. And now the Lord is not only going to redeem us, but he redeems the planet at the same time. Okay, and so in chapters four and five, we saw that picture in chapter six, he's going to take possession of the earth. He's going to restore godly dominion. Again, our sin brought about death and pain and sorrow and suffering. And God's going to restore the earth. And again, for a millennial kingdom, we will rule and reign with him. But before he can take possession of that which belongs to him, and please forgive the analogy, he's got to kick out the unruly tenant. Okay? You know, imagine if you rent out your house to somebody and they thrash it. You know, God gave us dominion over the earth not so we would destroy it. Amen? Not so we would thrash it. God gave us dominion that we might worship him and honor him as we dwelt upon upon the earth. Because, guys, this earth is not ours, it's his. Amen? And by the way, Mother Earth is not God. Amen? We don't worship our mother, we worship our heavenly father, and the earth is not my mother, my mom's sitting in here, okay? All right, so the reality is, we don't worship the earth, God created it, we worship the creator, not the creation. So, the Lord is going to come back and evict those who are, have not given their lives to him, and remember that by the time we get to this point, he has already removed the church. He gave man dominion over the earth but he didn't give it to him to trash it, so now he's going to come back. So the book of Revelation going forward, God bringing his righteous judgment against those who rebel against him, and in the midst of it, we're going to see that there are those who are saved. A restoration of rule and a reestablishing his intended purposes for the earth. The millennial kingdom, that's that thousand-year reign when we will rule and reign with him upon the earth, and again, ushering us then into eternity. So if you're a note-taker this morning, I titled the message, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. How many of you have ever heard of that before? Okay? You know, it's funny. They're, they're, it's a term that, that the world will use sometime. You know, I, I remember there was a football team. They called them the Four Horsemen. I'm like, you might want to read that text before you take that nickname. But in this morning's text, we're going to see that while God suffers long, he doesn't suffer always. 
And while he is a God of love and grace and mercy, he's also a holy God who will have to and does, because of his nature and his character, bring about righteous judgment. So in this morning's text, we're going to see these four horses and God's righteous judgment being taken into action. First off, we're going to see the white horse. And if you remember, in Matthew 24, the first thing he told them is, Beware of the false teachers, the deceivers who will come deceiving many. That first horse is deception. Deception will come, and there will be those, and sadly, the world itself will all turn their focus over and their allegiance over to the Antichrist. We're going to see that in the first two verses. We're going to see that God gives them what they want. You know what? God giving you what you want is not always good. Amen? Our prayer should not be, God, give me what I want. Lord, give me what you know I should have. Amen? Well, they cry out for what they want, and God says, okay, here you go. And they're all going to be a bunch of doe-eyed people looking up at their Antichrist, thinking he's the answer. Guys, there is no elected official that's the answer. Jesus Christ is the only answer for what ails us. Amen? So there's going to be a false peace. Secondly, the red horse, and this is the horse of war. What they wanted doesn't bless them, it's going to destroy them. The thing they cried out for, this false teacher, this deceiver that they align under, instead of blessing them, is going to destroy them. Because false peace does indeed turn to war before it's over. If there's a, you know, we could try to find peace in this world today through all kinds of things. But you know what? The only way you're going to have peace is to know the Prince of Peace. Any other peace you find is fleeting and will fail you. Thirdly, the black horse. This is the horse of famine. What they wanted leaves them wanting. This false peace doesn't satisfy. You know, flesh will only be satisfied for so long. This, the Antichrist, just understand, he's not going to be, you know, Beelzebub with horns growing out of his head and a pitchfork, you know, and look like some evil monster, though he is. He's going to be charismatic. He's going to be good-looking. And he's going to be someone who the entire world gives up their sovereignty and aligns under. But you know what? He's a liar and a deceiver. And he's one who destroys. And so often that thing that we strive after looks really good on the outside. But we're looking from a physical and a temporal perspective. And we don't recognize the heaviness of what we're asking for. And so in the end, this peace doesn't satisfy. And finally, the pale horse, the horse of death. What they wanted will end up separating them from God. And guys, in our lives, false peace can lead to destruction. When we pursue the wrong thing and try to find peace in the wrong place, it's going to end up bringing us harm. So let's begin there in verse 1. Looking first at the white horse of deception. God gives them what they want, and it's a false peace. Look at verse 1. Now I saw when the lamb opened opened one of the seals. Who's the lamb there? That's Jesus. Now that's better. You're doing better, okay? Now, when the lamb opened one of the seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. So again, the lamb is Jesus, and he's the only one who is worthy or is able to open up the scroll, the title deed to earth, to restore the earth back to God where it belongs. And again, he is the one who was slain. He's the only one who can redeem us. He's the only one who will bear wounds in heaven, as I saw last week. He's not just the lamb of God. He is the slain lamb of God. And we will see in heaven just 
how he maintains those reminders for us. So he's going to begin to take possession by bringing righteous judgment upon those who refuse to repent. And he opens one of the seals. He begins to open this scroll. These seals are in seven different spots. He opens it and it starts to unroll it a little bit. And as he does, the judgment begins. So the judgment is beginning on mankind. So one of the four angels who dwelt in the midst of the throne of God says, come and see. This loud, thunderous voice cries out to John. John is, where is John during this time? Where is he? Where is he? Heaven, okay? This is important because John is the church. Picture the church, right? So where are we when this is happening? In heaven, aren't you? And we ought to be a little more excited about it than that, amen? Where are we when this stuff is happening? Where are we? We're in heaven. Thank you, Jesus, amen? So we're in heaven looking down, and this week, you know, John is seeing what is happening. Come and see, John. You need to see this so you can write this down, so you can unveil this to the people, so they can better know their Savior and better understand the judgment that God has delivered them from. So he's looking down to see what is going to happen when this first seal is broken, and this is the official beginning of the seven-year period on earth known as the Great Tribulation. It starts right here. When that first seal is cracked open, okay, here we go. The great tribulation is about to begin. And then it says in verse 2, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, when you read that the first time, couldn't that sound like Jesus? What do you think? It's riding a white horse. Now, guys, we're not to get our theology from cowboy movies. Amen? You know, just because he's on a white horse and wearing a white hat doesn't mean he's the good guy. Amen? And too often people have said, well, Jesus, when you get to Revelation 19, Jesus is riding a white horse. But as we're going to see, that's about the only thing that this guy has in common with Jesus. Because you know what? The Antichrist is also an imitator of Christ. He doesn't try to appear like the opposite of Christ. He tries to appear as much like him as possible so even the elect might be deceived, the word of God says. And so there are those who will be looking and they will be duped by the the Antichrist thinking he is the Messiah. And again, most specifically, among the Jews who are here during the Great Tribulation. And again, this is such a clear picture of the Antichrist and his, his methods. His methods are to appear good when deep down, he's nothing but evil. And again, Jesus does appear. In Revelation 19, it says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. You don't see this guy called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he does judge and make war. We don't see that a claim to this guy. His eyes were the flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and, a, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, who is that? That's clearly Jesus. This guy's name is not the Word of God. He's not dipped in the blood of sacrifice. He is not one who's, who has flame of fire, and his head does not have many crowns, though he does have one crown, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So this first writer is not Christ, but he is actually the beast. Now in scripture, that's how he is referred to most often. You know, we use the term antichrist. But in the Bible, he's called most often the beast. And that's who he is. And he is indeed what we would consider the antichrist. So now notice some differences here. What does the antichrist have in his hand? He has a bow. And he has a bow, but he has no arrows. 
Now it's interesting because he does come initially as a peaceful leader. We know this from Daniel. That when he comes, he is going to bring world peace, at least for a moment in time. Now isn't that what the world is looking for, a leader to bring about peace? Now they want peace on this earth at all costs to eternity. The point is they don't understand that what we really need is eternal peace, not temporal peace. Now, temporal peace is a good thing, and praise God for it. But as we're about to find out in a few verses, the only reason there is any peace on the earth is the Holy Spirit is here. Because man left to himself doesn't know what peace is. You go back to the Garden of Eden. Cain killed Abel. We're talking there's four people on the planet. He's killing his brother, right? This shows the wickedness of man. By the way, if you haven't figured this out yet, man is not inherently good. Man is inherently wicked. Is that true or not? Man left to himself will not do good things. And so we see here that, you know, he's going to bring peace. And we know this from Daniel chapter 9. It says he'll make a covenant with Israel to protect her from her enemies. So he's going to solve the world's problems and be received as his great liberator. And you know why there's going to be so many problems on the earth? Because we're not going to be here. Now don't get arrogant and puffed up, but here's the reality. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us, right? So when the church leaves, guess who else leaves? The Holy Spirit. Can you imagine this place without the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the one who brings conviction to all men, even unbelievers. And when conviction is removed completely, have you ever seen like warlords and war-torn countries where there is just absolutely no conscience and they're slaughtering people and they're, you know, that's what the world's going to be like. Not just in some remote place on the earth, the entire world is going to be that way. And he's going to come along and he's going to be charismatic and he's going to have some catchphrase, you know, keep hope alive or something, I don't know. And he's going to come along and all the people are going to think he's the answer. And think how how powerful he must be where every nation gives up their sovereignty to this guy. Nations that have warred against each other for thousands of years are going to say, you know what, we're willing to align together under this guy. And again, he's even going to get the Jews, Israel, to align with him. The Antichrist is an imitation of Christ. He carries a bow without without arrows because he's going to come to bring peace. Jesus, when he comes back, what's he holding? A sword, a sword of righteous judgment. So again, this is very contradictory, right? He's got a bow. He's going to appear like a print, you know, like he's bringing peace to the earth. And for a period of time, he will. And the people will follow after him. And they will find out quickly that that peace is not real. It says, and a crown was given to him. Now, you need to understand there's two different Greek words used for crown. When you talk about Jesus and the crown in his head in Revelation, the word there is diadem. And is the crown of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the only one who can wear that is Almighty God. No one else. The Antichrist here does not have that crown on his head. He has a Stephanos. It's a victor's crown. It's a crown that you would earn through some kind of uh, you know, action, winning a sporting event. And certainly he's going to receive the praise of men. And certainly he's going to wear the victor's crown from the world's perspective, but he is not one who is worthy to wear the crown that belongs only to God because he is not God. He will come again originally or initially to bring peace, that bow with no arrows, and will have a position of great authority and great political power. He will be wearing that crown, the victor's crown. And it says there, and he went out conquering 
and to conquer. He's going to rule over the entire world. And again, something has to set the stage for that. You know, people today are looking for the Antichrist. Stop looking. Because he will only show up after we're in heaven. Quit looking for guys with three names with six letters in each one of them, okay? Stop it. Right? Oh, he's got six in his first name, six in his middle name, six, uh, six, six. That's him. That's the one. Stop it. Guys, as Christians, we don't look for the Antichrist. We look for the return of Christ. Amen? For him to rapture us and to take us away, let's quit looking for the evil one in the midst of us, and let's promote the holy one who lives inside of us. Amen? And so here we have the, the Antichrist, and he goes out conquering. He establishes his rule without war, or any time, at least initially, of military pre, pre, uh, pressure. And amazingly, this beast will be given complete charge over every nation upon the earth, as again, these sovereign nations join together. Including those nations, again, is, is Israel. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, the Antichrist tells us that he's going to uh, make a covenant with Israel that's going to last for seven years. He's going to allow them to rebuild the temple. Now, the Jews today, when you go to Israel, or when I have friends who are, are Jews, you know what they're looking for? Not the Son of God, but a great man who will be recognized as the Messiah by the fact that he will help them rebuild the temple. You know, if you go up on the Temple Mount, there's a spot ready for the temple to be rebuilt. And they've been gathering the articles to rebuild the temple for years. And so he's going to come along, and the temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And because of that, he's going to be able to earn the favor of the Jewish people. Now, as we know, the three and a half years into that seven-year time, he is going to enter into the temple. He's going to go into the Holy of Holies, and he's going to claim himself to be God. And when that happens, it's called the abomination that desolates, or the abomination of desolation. The word of God says, if you are alive when that happens, run. It's in the Bible. Run to the hills and hide. Because you think things have been bad the first three and a half years, hold on to your hats. Guys, I'm glad we're not going to be here for this. If you want to argue about it, I'm just, God bless you. And if you want to argue about it, that's fine. And you can believe that. But God has not appointed us to wrath. And when you start seeing the stuff that happens over the next several weeks, you're going to be thanking God every day that you're not going to be here. I can't imagine doing this to my kids. And I'm a flawed dad. How much more will a heavenly father not do it to his own children? Daniel 9 speaks of the 70th week of Daniel, the great tribulation, and tells us that the beast shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, and that seven-year covenant between Israel and the Antichrist coincides with this time of the great tribulation. With today's current political and, and social scene, our lost world is ripe for this, aren't they? So ready for it. All that waits for the, is for the Lord to allow it. It says in 2 Thessalonians, And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. What he's saying is the only reason the Antichrist has not risen to power is because God won't let him. But there is going to be a time when he who restrains, and that is the Holy Spirit, is taken out of the way, and then and only then can the Antichrist rise to power. So guys, guess what that means yet again? The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We can't be here. 
Amen? Is that clear? I know I'm driving this point home, and some of you are going to ask, well, I still don't think so. Well, that's all right. You can still go to church here if you're wrong. It's okay. So when the Holy Spirit, you know I'm kidding, right? Okay, I love you guys. When the Holy Spirit is removed from the earth, he's going to take the church with him, and as a temple of the Holy Spirit, we're going to be gone. And then and only then will the Antichrist be revealed. So it's the rapture of the church and the ensuing chaos that's going to set the stage for the rise of this beast, the Antichrist. I believe, imagine what the world's going to be like for the week after the rapture. It's going to be insane. Planes are going to fall out of the sky. You know, the world's people are just going to disappear all over the place. They're probably going to blame it on aliens. I don't know what else they're going to blame it on. But the reality is, all of a sudden, the, you know, millions of people disappear. There's mayhem everywhere. And now the Holy Spirit isn't here to help in the reclamation project. You think that Katrina was a mess, or you think that oil spill's been tough to clean up. Imagine what it's going to be like when the rapture of the church takes place and the Holy Spirit isn't here to help out. It's going to be rough. In Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, he speaks of that event that I told you about, the abomination of desolation. And it's going to, even though he's going to start off as being one who brings peace, it's not going to take long for the Antichrist to show his colors. He's going to tell the people what they want to hear until he gets them all. He's going to be the dictator of the world. All of the world will be aligned under him. And once he gets the position and the power and the authority that he craves, then he's going to bring not peace, but destruction. The Antichrist, though he gains power peacefully by bringing the nations together, he will maintain the power ruthlessly with very much bloodshed. His armies under his control will attack and kill as many as two-thirds of the Jews that remain upon the earth. He's going to make a covenant with them only to destroy them. Who does that sound like? It's Satan. The Bible says that Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He appears as an angel of light. He tempts us with things that are enticing, but all along, he's got one goal in mind, to destroy you. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your walk with God. He wants, you know, his ultimate victory would be if you committed suicide. That's the enemy. If you're here today and you're struggling with those things, understand that the enemy wants to destroy you, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And we need to keep our eyes on the Lord and, re and rest assured in the midst of the greatest trials of life that God is in control, he's sovereign, he's faithful, he's great, and none of this is a problem to him. Amen? So he makes a covenant with them, but his desire is only to destroy them. Now I'm going to read a text to you, and I don't want you to turn there because I don't want to play Bible baseball and lose you and have you get lost. So I, we're going to put the text up there on the screen. But I want you to read, I want to read this to you just to give you a little taste of this guy, the Antichrist, okay? It's in Revelation chapter 7. It says this, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and visions on my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever and ever. That's the millennial kingdom that will happen later. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up, before which three fell. Ten horns, some believe, and I, I believe this, 
This is pointing to the European economic community, right? That ten nations gathered together and it's out of the old Roman Empire that the Antichrist must come. So the Antichrist must be one born in the area of the old Roman Empire. I don't have time to teach this text, but I want you just to see it. It said, the mouth spoke with pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. He's going to be a good-looking guy. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and the judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time for his saints to possess the kingdom. Now, this is those tribulation saints, people that are saved during the tribulation. He's going to bring war against them. There's going to be a battle in Armageddon, Harmageddon, and it's then that Christ will return, and we will return with him, and they will turn to fight against the Lord, and he will bring destruction and righteous judgment upon those who have rejected him. Then it says, the fourth beast shall be like a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings, shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak with pompous words against the Most High. He's going to be a blasphemer. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change the times and the law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half. That's three and a half years. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. When Daniel saw all of this, it blew him away. But the end of that says, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. You know what? While the enemy will rule and reign upon the earth for a short period of time, in the end, God wins. Amen? And we will rule and reign with him forever. So this charismatic leader will take advantage of the turmoil of the rapture of the church. He's going to gain rule peacefully of the ten nations formed together in the foreign, former Roman Empire, modern day European economic community, in my opinion. Will become king of the world and then will turn on the world as the world surrenders to the beast. The end result is going to be perfect justice as God gives them exactly what they wanted. They wanted a king to, quote, bring peace upon the earth. They wanted an earthly king. They were looking for temporal peace, and God gives it to them. So this rider on the white horse is not Jesus, but the Antichrist. He has a bow, not a sword. A Stephanos, not a diadem. He brings temporary peace, not righteous judgment. And he's on the earth. And where is Jesus as we're looking at all this? He's in heaven opening the scroll. Amen. As this writer comes, Jesus is in heaven. So we know that this writer is not Jesus Christ. And again, the Antichrist is brought to prominence only after that first scroll is opened, after we have been caught up into heaven. So we don't need to be looking for the Antichrist. We're going to be watching Jesus open the scroll instead in heaven. Amen? So, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, God suffers long, but he won't suffer always. We saw the white horse... And he's the horse of deception. The rider on the horse is, the, is a man of deception. God's going to give them what they want. It's going to be a false peace that won't last for long. Now look at the follow-up to that. The next horse that comes is a red horse. And it's a horse that brings war. What they wanted doesn't bless them, but destroys them. As this false peace quickly turns into war. 
So let's look there in verse 3, if I can get my place back in my Bible. Okay. It says there in verse 3, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. So again, he's called to come and look and see. John is the one being able to be a witness to this. Verse 4, Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. The word fiery red here speaks of a blood red. And so this peace, you know, this peaceful dictator who comes along to bring peace to the world quickly follows up by bringing heavy bloodshed and murder upon the earth. This, this king who promises peace is instead going to bring about death. It says there he's granted to take peace from the earth. The word granted means God allows this writer to take this action. So guys, this judgment that comes, comes from God. Even though the judgment comes through the hands of the ungodly, do you know that God can use even the ungodly to bring about righteous judgment? And that's what's going to happen here. So here they come. Here, here comes the second writer, and here he comes with his own agenda to take peace from the earth, and notice that God is going to allow him to do it. Because even though there is mayhem on the earth, God is still in control. And we need to remember that. We look around the world today and we wonder why. Have you, how many times have you heard this? Why would a loving God allow people to suffer? How many times have you heard that question? Here's the reality. It's only because of the grace of God that we're not all suffering. Amen? The reality is that our sin has brought suffering and torment and pain and death to this planet. And it's only because of God's grace that we're not all that it's suffering right now. But praise God that even in the midst of it, God is in control. And for Christians, when we suffer, it ought to make us more desperate for Him and in more intimate fellowship with Him because we're hanging on to Him with both hands. Amen? So we should praise God in the midst of it because our suffering is but light affliction when compared to the glory which is to come. We're going to heaven. What we're going through now is nothing compared to the glory of heaven. So peace is God's gift to man. And once taken, men will rush into war and destruction. The peace between men and nations is a gift from God. It is not the natural state and relationship of men. You know, left to ourselves, we're sinful, we're prideful, we get angry, we're envious, and we have hatred in our heart. Is that not true? All you have to do is somebody cut you off in traffic to find out what your nature's like sometimes, amen? You can be singing praise songs and a guy cuts you off and you flip a switch. Because our nature is not kind and loving and gracious apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can respond in the right way. But we see that, can you imagine, the Holy Spirit is taken, and now peace is taken. There's no peace upon the earth. There's no Holy Spirit upon the earth. And the end result is going to be wickedness running rampant. They're going to destroy each other. And again, it goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, the men left to themselves. That word kill there in verse 4, they should kill one another. The word kill is to slay, to slaughter, or to butcher. It doesn't just speak of you know, people dying of natural causes. This is the ugly slaughter of people. As the writer takes peace away, 
The influences of men to brutally slaughter and butcher one another is something that Satan loves. He seeks to still kill and destroy. You know, think about who Satan is. He loves to see mass murder. He loves war. He loves destruction. He loves things like abortion. Amen? He loves that humans are being destroyed and slaughtered and butchered. He loves it. Praise God that we serve the Prince of Peace. Amen? The one who doesn't come to steal, kill, and destroy, but to to give us life and life more abundant, to redeem us, to save us, to restore us, to forgive us. Guys, you know, we had to go talk to a I had to go talk to a counselor guy about something going on with one of my boys. And he said, you know, you religious people, everything is so black and white with you. And I was like, amen. <laughs> Guys, Satan, Jesus Christ, pick one. Amen. You choose today whom you're going to serve. Jesus said you're either for me or you're against me. Guys, we're either on his side or we're against him. Amen. Time to get on his side. Those who don't, oh, we'll get peace. We'll, we'll, you know, keep hope alive. Somebody will come along and bring peace to us. Let's find someone we can align under. Don't align under anybody but Jesus Christ. He is the only one. So Satan seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. The first rider had a bow without any arrows, and this rider has a great sword, and he's not hesitant to use it. And so the peaceful methods of the Antichrist used to gain power quickly give way to worldwide bloodshed. And 1 Thessalonians says, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. The entire world will be slipping into war and violence and anarchy and bloodshed. It'll be survival of the fittest. And it won't just be isolated incidents like we see today in some small places, but this will be worldwide as people are just killing one another. And again, I'm convinced the man will do worse than even the the animal kingdom does to itself. It's going to be every man for himself. Imagine if we just took all the police away. And what if there's no crime and no judgment? The guy, biggest guy in your neighborhood would have the biggest house because he would just kick you out, right? I mean, the reality is that's what the world will be like when you have no Holy Spirit, when God is not, does not have his hand upon it, when peace is taken away. This is the great tribulation. This is God's judgment upon the earth, giving man what he wants. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately wicked. That's man. I didn't come here to be told I'm wicked. Yar. So am I. Amen? We're all bad. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. But we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and we're now holy in Him and righteous in Him. In the Old Testament, God continually warns the children of Israel, do not depart from me, because if you depart from me, you have no idea what you're capable of. Capable of. When we are driven by the flesh without the Holy Spirit, this world is going to become a savage and ungodly mess overnight. Think about the things that you've done, the worst things you've done in your lifetime, and you were not operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, but you had given in to your fleshly desires. Is that true or not? And imagine if you remove the Holy Spirit and every man and woman and child on this planet is given over to their fleshly desires without any restraint. What is the world going to look like? Going to be a mess. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. God suffers long, but he won't suffer always. We saw the first, the white horse, the one who rode on it, who brought deception. God gives them what they want, a false sense of peace. The red horse, the horse of war, what they wanted doesn't bless them, but destroys them as this false peace 
quickly turns to war. And then thirdly, the black horse, the horse of famine. What they wanted is going to leave them wanting. False peace doesn't satisfy for long. The new car smell wears off. Amen? You know, we always think there's just one more thing I need and then I'll be happy. And it's always something temporal. And God says, you know what? I love you enough to allow you to go through difficulty so you might find out what you really need is me. And guys, that's a blessing. We, we use the word blessing wrong in the church today. We'll look at someone with a ton of money and a big house on the hill and go, wow, they're really blessed. Well, in one sense they are. But you know what? Sometimes I go to India and I'm with a, a Christian pastor who's been beaten numerous times, whose life has been threatened, who's living in a shack, who is on fire for God. And I say, now this guy is blessed because he gets it. He has an eternal perspective, not a temporal one. Let's look for blessing from an eternal perspective. So let's take a look here at this third horse, the black horse of famine. It says in verse 5 and 6, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. Now what does this all mean? A pair of scales. These are balances. The scales symbolize the need to carefully measure or ration out something. And in this case, it's food. How many have ever heard the, the, the statement that in the last days there will be a wheelbarrow full of money for a loaf of bread? You heard that before? Okay. Well, guys, this is where we see that beginning. This is a picture of that. Because there is, there's a reason we pray over our meals. Don't, shouldn't we pray over our meals? We should pray without ceasing, so certainly praying over our meals should be included in that. Amen. But when we pray over our meals, we pray because... We recognize that God is the one who provides everything. Amen? When the Lord taught them to pray, what did he teach the disciples? Give us this day our daily bread. Right? Because, guys, every meal we have comes from God. And you don't realize that until you don't have any food. Right? Well, part of God's righteous judgment is going to show them that he is Jehovah Jireh, Lord God, our provider. And when Jehovah Jireh, Lord God, our provider, is removed from the scene and every man is out for himself, you think the economy's bad now. In this text, it says a denarius for, a denarius seeks of barley and of, and of, and of uh, grain. And it says there, a denarius for a quart of wheat and three quarts of barley. Now, a quart of wheat, how much is that? A quart of wheat basically would make a small loaf of bread. And don't get carried away and think of, you know, a loaf of bread like this. It's more like a bun. It's a little loaf of bread about this size. And a denarius was the amount that a laborer made working for an entire day. So in today's terms, I don't know what a laborer makes, but... Let's just say it's somewhere between $100 and $200 a day. If he works all day long, right, if he's making 15 bucks an hour, whatever he's making, right, that'd be $120, something like that. He says he's laboring with his hands, right? So what's basically saying is $120 for a bun. Okay? And not even a bun, but the amount of wheat needed to make the bun. Because you've got to take that little amount and go home and make it. Now, that is enough food, not really even enough food, for a man who's going to be working hard for eight hours. 
But what about his wife and his children? How is this man going to feed his family? The reality is, he's not. Now, he can get three quarts of barley for that. But barley, was in good times, is basically what they feed horses. But he can get three buns of barley for a day's wages that might make his, help his family survive a little longer. Guys, this is the righteous judgment of God upon the earth that rejects Jehovah Jireh. Guys, we need to be thankful for our daily food, amen? Because a time is coming, and praise God we won't be here, to see what it's like when man is left to himself. And then it says, do not harm the oil and the wine. You know, what good is oil and wine when you don't have food? Everyone will struggle for just the basic needs to survive. And this is perfect justice. The ungodly, you know, who never thank God for his, for his provision, and then use what energy? You know, they didn't thank God that he provided for them, and then they took his provision to give them energy to go out and do evil. And now God says, okay, here's my righteous. Now, he has suffered long. For thousands of years he has suffered with man. And he has been faithful to, to wait and to wait and to give opportunities to be saved. But while he suffers long, he won't suffer always. God's going to take away the food supply from the earth. He's going to bring righteous judgment. He's going to allow this to happen. Now, all through all of this, there are going to be people getting saved. Because there will be those who recognize this is God's righteous judgment. And you know what? It's better to serve God than to follow after this mess. Amen? Now, with that being said, most won't. Because this just shows the hardness. We're going to see this next week. The hardness of the heart of man. You know, next week we're going to see, you know, the sun changing and the stars changing and everything else. And instead of falling down and worshiping God, they run and hide from him. Guys, when we're going through the trials of this life, we don't run from him. We run to him. Amen? So here's this famine. So we have deception and war and famine. We're only three seals in so far. And guess what? You think the seal judgments are bad. Wait till we get to the bowl judgments that are coming. Guys, our God is a loving, gracious, merciful God, but he's also a holy God who must judge wickedness and sin and unrepentance. He must, or he's not holy. So finally, the pale horse. This is the horse of death. What men wanted is going to separate them from God. And look at verse 7 and 8. It says that when I opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse and the name on him who said on it was death and Hades followed with him and power was given them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death and by the beast of the earth. We're on the fourth seal. We haven't got to the bulls yet and a fourth of the world's population is going to be wiped out. How many is a fourth of the world's population? Well, I looked it up. It's one good thing about Google, right? I went on there. The latest estimate is there's 6.8 billion people on the earth. One-fourth is 1.7 billion. That is the population of Central America, South America, the United States, Canada, and Europe all combined. Wiped out. God's righteous judgment as he allows death and Hades to come to the earth. The word pale there for that pale rider, a pale horse, is a greenish yellow and is described as the color of a corpse. 
Isn't it interesting that the rider, that the horse, is the color of a corpse and he brings death? So the last of this four horsemen of the apocalypse shows that there will be tremendous death toll from the deception, from the war, from the famine, and the other calamities described by the previous three horsemen, one of which is disease, pestilence. You know, there's going to, no doubt, during the Great Tribulation, there are going to be diseases that just run rampant and wipe out millions of people. You know, we look at all the wars of the last century, and hundreds of millions of people have died, but 1.7 billion are going to die in a matter of, certainly in a matter of three years, and it could even be in a matter of days, depending on how you interpret this text here. But this writer is going to be set forth upon the earth, and righteous judgment is going to follow. 1.7 billion people. That's amazing. No wonder Jesus said of this time, for there will be, then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall there ever be. There has never been anything close to what the great tribulation is going to be like. And again, we're just four seals in. We have the seal judgments and the bold judgments are still to come. So it says there that death rides along killing people and Hades comes up behind him. Hades is a word for the place of the dead spirits or hell. can also be an interpretation of that word. So death is coming along killing people physically and riding right behind him is hell to collect their spirits. That's what the text in the Bible says. Is this heavy or what? Does this not want you to make you want to witness to every person you know? Because guess what? That's what's facing a lost and a dying world that doesn't repent and give their lives to Jesus Christ. They're facing, and again, does this start to sound a little bit like hell on earth? As we continue on, we're going to see as we go through the judgments, there's going to be a time where there's darkness, heat that is beyond what people can stand that they will be biting on their tongues in severe pain and crying out to die, but will be unable to. What does that sound like? It sounds like hell, doesn't it? But guess what? The Great Tribulation, you know, what happens on the earth during the Great Tribulation is nothing compared to hell. Here's why. Because the Great Tribulation lasts seven years and hell lasts for an eternity. And during the Great Tribulation, people can still be saved, but once people are in hell, it's too late. So while we'll see a picture of hell, it doesn't really touch hell. So death claims the body, and hell claims the soul. So tragic as, the de- not, you know, as, tragic as the death of these 1.7 billion people is. It's tragic, right? That they die because of famine and war and, and pestilence and disease. It's tragic. But guys, that's nowhere near as tragic as where they end up spending eternity. Their death here will be painful. Their death here, maybe they may have to suffer for a while, but you know what? They'll suffer for eternity if they don't give their lives to Jesus Christ. You know, I didn't come here today for a hellfire and brimstone message. Well, guess what? That's chapter six. <laughs> Amen? And my prayer last night while I was studying and all this morning is that if there's one person here that doesn't know Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. That nobody would have to face this tribulation. That nobody would have to enter in and face the righteous judgment of God because they rejected his grace and his love and his mercy. Death is coming, and Hades is following behind it. As we go through the next 13 chapters, 
What happens to this planet, again, is going to look like hell on earth. It's going to be suffering like no time in human history. Notice it says there at the end, killed. Look at the last part of that verse. It says they're going to die of what? Killing of the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. I believe that because there's going to be so much famine and there's going to be no food source, that we're going to see beasts going after human beings to kill them like never before. And that's what this text is talking about. That animals are going to turn. Maybe even some animals turning on their owners. I mean, when they don't have food, when you have this much bread to feed your family, how much food is your animal going to get? Nothing. Right? You're going to feed your kids first. Love your dog, love your kids more. At least I hope so. Amen? But that being said, you're going to see the animal kingdom. I mean, this is going to be a mess. We're going to be in heaven, lying, laying down with lambs. Amen? That's where we're going to be. And on earth, it's going to be just the opposite. I praise God that many will repent during the Great Tribulation. I was talking to this Jewish friend of mine. We had lunch together earlier this uh, last week. And, we're, and I was talking to him about, and I love that, you know, talk to him about what I'm teaching next, right? He's not a Christian. He used to not let me quote the Bible to him. He used to always try to shut me up. But now, for whatever, by the grace of God and your prayers, he's now open. So what do you, he even brought it up. So what are you teaching next week? Well, let me tell you. So I'm telling him about the great tribulation. He's like, so, if you disappear one day, I'll still have seven years to get right with God. That's what he said. And I said, well, yeah. I said, first of all, if you make it to the great tribulation, you get hit by a bus this afternoon, right? Don't wait for the seven years. Don't wait. You don't want to have to take the mark of the beast or have your head lopped off if you don't. You don't want to face the 120-pound hailstones falling from the sky. That's what I was telling him about. He's like, really? It's in the Bible? I said, yes, yeah, in the Bible. And I, I said, I can't give you the whole tribulation because I just scratched the surface of it. But I was telling him about the seal judgments, and he was like, wow, so... All right, if you and Dave Belagamba and the other guys here that know God disappear, then all right, maybe I'll... I said, no, you won't. If you won't repent now, you won't repent then. Because most people still will reject the truth of the gospel. But this world is going to be a mess. And we should not want to wait until the great tribulation to get saved. We should be praising God that he's going to rapture us out and snatch us up and bring us into heaven And there we will rule and reign with him. We'll come back with him and see what the world will be like for a thousand years with the Lord in control. It is important to note that the power given to death in Hades again was given by God. God's the one who allowed it. And though all hell is breaking loose, God is in control. And he is the one who holds the scroll and opens the seals. And as we've talked about from the beginning of this book, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of, the per- of his person, of his character. And without this book, we have a shrouded view of him. But through this book, we get to clearly see who he is. Guys, Jesus Christ is no longer a baby in a manger. Now, we praise God for the baby in the manger, don't we? But that's not who he is anymore. He's not a savior on a cross anymore either is he praise god for the savior on the cross without that you and i are doomed right but that's not who he is today and you know what he's not a man he's a risen and living savior but we know from his description that we saw in revelation chapter one who he is in heaven 
He is clothed with a garment down to his feet. He is girded about his chest with a golden band. His head and hair are white like wool and white as snow. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet like fine brass refined in a furnace. His voice is the sound of many waters. He has in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. His countenance is like the sun shining in its strength, and even those who are closest to him fall over like dead men in his presence. That's Jesus Christ. And guess what? He's on our side. Aren't you glad? So when you read this list, you know what's a good thing to always remember? But Jesus, right? Here's the truth of what's going to happen to the world, but Jesus is on my side, and I know him, and he's adopted me, and he's going to deliver me from all of this. That's the God that we serve. And that ought to make us want to worship, amen? That ought to give us some excitement about the God that we serve. If we know him, we will not be afraid. He's the first, the last. He was dead, but he now lives. He's alive forevermore. He has the keys to death and hell. He knows everything about his bride, the church. He encourages us when we are faithful. He exhorts us when we are slothful. He rebukes us when we're disobedient. All of heaven sings his praises, praising him for his godly attributes and character, his holiness, that he is the creator, that he alone is worthy because he has redeemed us back to the Father by his blood to take the scroll, the title deed to the earth. He is the lamb worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and honor and glory and blessing. He is the one who is in control as the world is being righteously judged. He is righteous and must judge sin. And he is gracious and he gives, again, the rebellious people one last time, one last opportunity to repent. He is a God who suffers long, but he won't suffer always. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your grace. And Lord, as we look at the righteous judgment upon the earth, may we never think for even a moment that it's not fair. Because Lord, what we deserve is worse than this. But Lord, you're a gracious God and a loving God and a merciful God. And your desire is that none should face this, no, not one, that all would be delivered and come to a saving knowledge of your Son. Lord, I pray this morning, if there's even one person here that doesn't know you, that indeed today would be the day of salvation. That they would not be convinced by the words of men, but the power of your Holy Spirit to transform lives. Lord, may you draw them by your Spirit even now. If that's you here this morning, as all the believers are praying, the Bible does say that today is the day of salvation. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Today you have to choose whose side you're on, and no decision is a decision. To come to no decision is to choose against our Savior. He loves you so much, he'd rather die than live without you. He holds out the offering of salvation universally, but it must be accepted individually. God has no grandchildren. You're not saved because your parents were Christians. You're not saved because you go to church. The only reason, the only way that you and I can be saved individually is if we repent of our sin and turn away from the person we used to be and put Jesus Christ on the throne of our lives and serve him for the rest of our lives. That's God's desire and that's God's plan. And my prayer is not one of you would be here when the great tribulation begins, but the only way that's gonna happen is if you give your life to Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you to do something. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. What I'm going to ask you to do is to stand to your feet so I can pray with you. If that's you today, I want you to stand to your feet right now. Today's the day of salvation. Anybody at all. The Lord loves you. God bless you, brother. Anybody else? 
Anybody else? Well, for the brother who stood up and anybody else here, if that's your desire this morning, I just want you to pray this simple prayer with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning and I confess that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Make me a new creation in Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ died for me and he paid for my sin. Lord, help me to walk with you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I know I say it often, but it bears repeating. The Bible says when one person is saved, that all the angels in heaven rejoice. There's a party in heaven. Let's join in the party. Let's worship the Lord. Amen.